Hello and welcome to Fresh Ears from Fresh Air Production. I'm Neil Cowling, founder of Fresh Air, but I didn't come up with the name Fresh Ears. That was someone else completely. So what's the point of this series? Well, we make a lot of podcasts and we know there are a lot of people out there who are interested in how to make podcasts. So we thought that instead of just talking to ourselves about it, we'd put it all into a podcast. I believe it's what marketing people call eating your own dog food. In each episode, we're looking back at one of the projects we've created with the client and the producer to see what we can learn. And in turn, what helpful tips and insights we might have for anyone listening who's thinking of creating their own branded podcast. Today, we're having a look at The Big Steel, undoubtedly the most complicated podcast series we've ever created, but also definitely one of the ones we're most proud of. It's not just a branded series, it's a piece of investigative journalism which took over a year to make. The Big Steel is an original documentary podcast we produced for GML, exploring the crimes of the world's richest man and most successful gangster, Russian President Vladimir Putin. GML represent the shareholders of Yukos, previously Russia's biggest oil company, who successfully sued Russia in The Hague in February 2020 after their company was stolen by the Kremlin in 2003. Anything happens in Britain which is chaotic, the Russian press covers it and plays it up, right? Any problem, they cover it and play it up. Or if there's something in, in, that's happening in Britain, like Brexit, which is going to cause chaos, they support it. They supported Brexit with, um, probably with money, I don't know, but they supported Brexit with, certainly with, at our, with RT, with their television resources, they supported it on the internet, um, and their diplomats supported it. And, you know, Mr. Putin talked about it. Mr. Putin talked about how wonderful it would be for you guys after Brexit which is generally a sign that you should like think twice about something. Like if Mr. Putin says, you should really go out with this woman, you know, you should probably like give it another thought before you make plans for that Saturday night. So, the Russian state can invade other countries without consequence, shoot planes out of the sky and deny it, and get its own US president elected. And Putin is the most powerful Russian leader since Stalin. So why would anyone think that a podcast from us would make any difference. We've got our client, Jonathan Hill, the Director of Communication for GML. Hello, Jonathan. Hi, Neil. Good morning. Uh, we've got Martin Points Roberts, our producer on this project, a journalist of over 20 years' experience, who I think it's fair to say got his teeth into this. Martin, hello. Good morning, Neil. And Dan Stainsby from our partners at 40C, who worked on the launch marketing of the series. I remember, very vividly remember, taking the first phone call about this in the room that I'm sat in now. Uh, a phone call that said, we'd like to make a podcast about Russia and Vladimir Putin. And I admit that I wondered what the hell we were getting ourselves into. But as soon as I understood the background, I knew we had to do it. So could you start by just summarising for those who aren't familiar what the UCOS story is and, and what story you were trying to tell? Sure. It, it's a long and complicated story, as you know, Neil and Martin, but I'll condense it into its short version. In 2014, an independent international arbitral tribunal in The Hague concluded 10 years of work and they concluded unanimously that Yukos Oil Company had been uh, unlawfully and brutally expropriated and that that was part of a political vendetta uh, steered by the Putin regime and targeting Mikhail Khodorkovsky who had been the head of Yukos Oil Company. And uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky went on to spend a decade in jail. 
together with his business partner, Platon Lebedev. And that tribunal awarded compensation of just over $50 billion to the former shareholders, which I think is a measure of how successful UCOS had become. And as you just said, uh, in February this year, the Court of Appeal in The Hague reinstated and confirmed that award of $50 billion. The reason we wanted to come to you and, and work with Fresh Air is that we have always felt that this is a story that the, the public needed to know because it's a, a very vivid case study which shows how the Putin regime operates. It shows how far it's willing to go to undermine the rule of law. Obviously, some of that is brutal and chilling. And, and I think you covered that brilliantly in, in the podcast, the, the, the human suffering in this. And we feel that it's, it's ultimately, it's in the public's interest to know and understand how this regime works, because ultimately uh, the threat is not only to the, uh, the dignity of the Russian people and their freedom, but also, as we've seen over the last decade, it's a threat also to our own democracies. So why did you think that a podcast was the right medium to use to tell that story? You could have done that through video or through blogs or through a book. Why a podcast? I think a podcast made sense because we needed a medium that was going to capture the whole complexity of the story. As I've outlined very briefly, this is a very complex story. It's a story which is now 20 years old. And it's got various threads running through it. There's the legal thread. Clearly, there's a geopolitical thread about Russia and how the West deals with a very brutal authoritarian regime. And it raises questions about whether we in our democracies are able to hold to account and bring to justice that regime. But there are a number of very poignant human stories that run through all of that from beginning to end. People who have suffered for different reasons, people who are fighting for justice. So I think the podcast allowed us to get the, the texture of that story and all the different nuances and threads and dimensions. We make some podcasts that are very much in the sort of marketing camp. This is very much in the, the comms, perception shifting, hearts and minds camp, I guess. Who were you trying to convince? What were you trying to do what was, the, what was the objective behind it? I think in some ways we were reminding a certain community about this story and why it was still relevant and why it was still significant to our democracies in the West. People know the name Mikhail Khodorkovsky, they've heard of UCOS. But I think we felt that there was a danger that that story would slowly be forgotten and that the lessons of that story would be forgotten. We're fighting essentially a legal battle in the courts, in The Hague, in the Netherlands. And that's from a communications perspective. That's a very slow moving affair, which doesn't throw up much news, except when you come to those major milestones of a, of a ruling. So I think, again, telling the story, reminding people what it was about and why it's still significant today. I think that's what we were trying to do. Martin, so as lead producer on this, I think you may have had the same feelings as I did and, and potentially the same conversation with your wife that I did that was a, a kind of, <laughs> do we really want to do this? Do we really want to get involved? What was your, what was your reaction when we brought this project to, 
Well, we talked about it before, and I remember saying to you, I think, that sounds like a great project for some uh, willing producer. <laughs> Little did I know that that was going to be me. And I remember the, the, the time you said to me, you know, that Russia project, it's, um, it's back on, and I think uh, I'd like you to do it. Now, as a journalist, I jumped at this. I thought, wow, what an opportunity to get my teeth in. But then I started thinking, how do I break this to my wife? And having spoken to and listened to previous series had, that have been made about Russia. They were talking about how when they embarked on the series that they made, investigating some of the uh, unexplained murders, strange things began to happen. So for instance, one of the producers said a black car would park outside their house and just watch. And one of the other producers said uh, someone had broken into their house and they knew they'd been there, but nothing was been taken. So I was a little bit concerned, but if you know, as I, th I think I said to you guys, well, if they can park on my street, good luck on, <laughs> good luck to them, because I can't. <laughs> um, but joking aside, I thought this is too too great a story to miss out on producing it, and I think you know it touched on so much that has been in the news, but the detail was unknown by me. I mean, I'm a journalist, and I, I kind of like to dig into some stories, but digging deep, you 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 kind of get beyond. The word oligarch and the owner of a well-known football club in London, and that's all I had knowledge of. You know, there are things I thought, you know, this is a this is a great opportunity to really shed light on something that has dropped out of the public eye. Yes, we know about Russia. Yes, we know about Putin. But do we really? And um, myself and the presenter wanted to really, really expose some of the things we found out early on that made us feel a little bit uh, queasy <laughs> about him. Well, you, you mentioned the presenter, and obviously that's sort of third ingredient. And with any podcast that we create, there's always an early conversation that says, do you want a famous person? Do you want a an influencer? Do you want someone from in-house to present it? Um, and, and all of those are relevant and, and valid in different circumstances. But the presenter in this case was Gavin Esler, former Newsnight, senior BBC journalist, former BBC Washington correspondent proper big hitter uh, we, we hit on Gavin quite early as a sort of dream uh, presenter why was that so important in this case well he he was uh, the dream presenter Neil I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier about there being a, a public interest in this story we felt that a wider public needed to understand our story and I think you want somebody like Gavin Esler to tell that story because of what's at stake for our democracies and our politics, there just could not be a better choice, I don't think. You worked very closely with him, Martin, didn't you? You were hand in hand and he got very involved, didn't he? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, he did get really stuck in and we worked very closely playing around with different ideas of how we should do it. Would it be a conversation between myself and Gavin in a kind of true crime sense of the of, of the medium? Or, well, you know, how, how should it work? And I think... Now, we, we decided on the way we did it as, you know, Gavin taking the lead, but taking us all on the journey throughout the, uh, the story as well. And I think it felt very intimate. He was really sharing his experience of discovering things along the way, I think. So I think, yeah, I mean, he was a massive, massive get for us and he's made, made the, the series a success it is, I think. And Jonathan, without being too indiscreet, it's stating the obvious, someone like Gavin doesn't come cheap. And, and therefore, we always sort of you, you're factoring in not only just what does he bring to the project, but what social reach does he have? How do you use your presenter as a marketing asset, to be completely blunt about it? Um, did that pay off as well? 
For sure. I, I think we saw that not only in the way that the podcast was received, because obviously he brought his experience and credibility to the podcast once it was completed and we were we were distributing it. So he was enormously helpful there. But also it was his his credibility was so important, I think, to to writing the story. Because I think, and I'm sure Martin will confirm this, when you are approaching somebody like Ann Applebaum, who is a huge authority in the field of, of Russia and, and thinking and writing about Russia, but who is also somebody who's extremely busy and constantly on the road. These people, I, I know from my own experience, these people are difficult to, to track down. I'm sure that when you say to those people, we're doing this with Gavin Esler and he'd like to talk to you, that helps enormously. And I think that's more than just a practical issue. I think there's something very important there in in Gavin's ability to bring those voices on board. Just thinking from a production point of view, though, though Martin, I, I think it's, it's important to think about how this is different from something that we would create for the BBC. Because, you know, you're a former BBC journalist, I'm a former Five Live producer. We could have taken this stories of the BBC. We could have taken it to Audible. We decided to produce it independently. And a lot of that was because we wanted to create something for GML that was editorially exactly what GML wanted to create and tell the story with, frankly, without having to, to give sort of false equivalence to, to other arguments. From, from a producer's point of view, that can create some conflict, both internal conflict and, you know, Jonathan's in the room, but with client as well. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a different thing, isn't it, from creating a journalism project where you're doing it for a broadcaster than doing it for a paying client. What's the difference there and what considerations do you have to take into account? It's a very interesting conversation to have because Gavin and I, when we started this, thought, OK, let's ask the questions we would as journalists. So we know that Putin is bad. We think Putin is bad, but is he really? Has he done some good? Because, you know, I remember when he came to, when he was elected, there were people saying, oh yeah, he's going to be, you know, a real, a real fresh opportunity for entrepreneurship and business. There are people, I'm sure, that still believe that. We realised very early on that you know, we don't have to do that. We don't have to put forward this view that well, you know, he may have murdered X number of people, but what about what he's done for this, that and the other? The fact is we could, we could really take the story and tell it in its full warts and all reality, I think. Uh, I, there was no one saying, you can't say that, you can't say that. Obviously, speaking to the client, yes, they, <laughs> we take a lead from them. But that was a really nice relationship built up between myself, Gavin, Jonathan and you, Neil, to an extent as well, is that everything was very open and clear. We, we let Jonathan know exactly what we were doing and we all wanted the best for the product to get the, get the story told and really go into the detail to say, you know, this is what's going on. And I think another, another, another difference is that in a podcast, you have time and flexibility, whereas in a, in a documentary, say on, for instance, Radio 4, there are, there are set times. Admittedly, we kept it as we do with podcasts to a kind of uniform length, but there was freedom to, to change that. And so, for instance, an interview we, we recorded with Ben Emerson QC was, in my opinion, so good that we, we ran 18 minutes of it straight <laughs> without sort of cutting it down. He speaks so beautifully about the subject that he, he's involved in. And you think, well, you know, 
where else could I do something like that? Where else could we tell the story as thoroughly, as comprehensively and as clearly, and I think as fairly? When you think about what the BBC would say to that, what your training would say is that you're flirting with crossing the line into creating a, a one-sided argument. And also you are risking, you know, there were legal risks in this. If you, you know, you, you still have to let your journalism training kick in to know that you are not breaking the law or saying anything that you shouldn't. Um, Jonathan, the, the um, same conflict from your point of view, though, I guess, you know, you're paying us to produce a podcast, which is to tell your story, story of UCOS. And we had some fairly frank conversations early on, didn't we, about journalistic freedom, creative freedom. And it's also fair to say that we had some bumps in the road on that as well in, in, in how we balanced out what we thought was the right way to tell the story and what you and your stakeholders wanted us to say. How tricky was that? It's, it's always going to be tricky. In some ways, it's the hardest part of the project, I think, from the beginning. And the only way you can deal with that is by building trust. And I felt that I had a very, very high level of trust in you, Neil and Martin. From our first meeting, it just felt right. And I think that trust is absolutely critical because what are you doing? You are taking something that is very precious to you, your story, and you are giving that to somebody else to handle and retell. And that requires a small leap of faith on our part, and we, we took that leap of faith, uh, but also a huge degree of trust that the team you're working with is going to look after that story and retell it faithfully, uh, faithfully to the, to the truth and to the people that were involved. And I think you did that brilliantly. Let's just talk a bit about launch, because um, we brilliantly managed to plan this podcast to launch at around the same time that a global pandemic was breaking out um, and therefore gave ourselves the challenge of trying to get onto the news agenda whilst all that was going on. Um, Dan uh, from Marketeers 40C was the man who had the job of helping us trying to spread the word about a podcast and break through into that news agenda and, and get us the PR that we needed around the launch. Um, hi, Dan. Can you, you tell us a little bit about what you did to to help us try and get the word out yeah it's, it's funny looking back now at the initial brief even that changed at the time give or give or take a global pandemic but initially we spoke about how best to use broadcast media to promote the podcast and i think it was interesting what you were talking about in terms of gavin's broadcasting chops his credibility his deep understanding of the topic yes that made him the perfect presenter for the podcast but it also made him a really interesting interviewee for broadcasters to speak to and that made our life a lot easier so our job essentially would be to put gavin on air within opportunities which would give him a platform to talk a little bit about what's going on in russia or initially the strategy was to respond to the Hague court of appeals ruling and then leverage that as an opportunity to direct listeners to the podcast to take a deeper dive into the content as you say, the strategy changed a little bit. So <laughs> Sod's Law, um, Gavin actually wasn't available when the ruling was made. So the promotional, the broadcast promotional activity was actually delayed slightly. Um, however, thankfully, in inverted commas, there's always something going on with Russia and Putin within the news agenda. So actually, we were able to delay our activity rethink our strategy and leverage the two-year anniversary of the Salisbury poisonings 
and also news around the MH17 flight that was shot down and put Gavin on air as an expo who could talk about what, what two years on means, why nothing's happened really around the poisonings, what's going on with MH17, and brief him to use that to actually talk about what else is going on in the world of Putin, bringing it back to the UCOS case, and actually then, as I say, successfully directing people to the podcast to find out more. And which outlets were most interested? Which outlets gave us the most airtime on that? Yeah, it's, uh, so we were targeting BBC and commercial outlets, but it was interesting what you were talking about earlier in terms of podcasts being so good for human stories. Um, and of course, radio is very similar. So we targeted primarily feature-based radio programming, and actually one of the big successes was Radio 5 Live, did a really, really good interview with Gavin. Um, it was actually one of the few interviews which was specifically about the podcast. So it was Jeff Lloyd very much talking to Gavin about the podcast, what it involved, what, it, what it's about. The majority of the other interviews were about what was going on in the news agenda. And as I say, we leveraged that to then promote the podcast. But we secured a mixture of BBC and commercial outlets. Of course, you can't pay to advertise on the BBC. So it's great to be able to if you like, use that as a platform, which you couldn't pay to advertise on, but we effectively used it to promote the podcast. Um, radio, more broadly, is the most trusted source of, of news or information in the UK. So again, we could leverage that trust. And it's also an amplifier of word of mouth. So we know how important word of mouth is in terms of promoting podcasts. Well, radio is a little bit like turning that up to 11. <laughs> All the Spinal Tap fans will, will know what I mean by that. <laughs> but it's um, it's a real amplifier of word of mouth. And, and we, we effectively use that. And Again, I was really excited, Neil, when you had a look at some of the analytics. And whilst we were very much focusing on the BBC Radio 5 Live piece as our kind of trophy win, albeit we secured over 10 interviews, which collectively reached more than 10 million adults, it was actually one of the opportunities secured in Ireland, which proved to be one of the most um, or the easiest to demonstrate a tangible result from. So we placed Gavin Esler on uh, Today FM in Ireland and actually through the analytics we could see that that delivered a massive spike in downloads immediately afterwards and actually took the podcast into the top five most popular podcasts in Ireland at that time so it was great to see that instant chartable success which we could directly attribute to that one interview. It, it was amazing that I, I don't think we've we've ever been able to just see that see an, an instant spike that was so directly caused by featuring on a on a radio show it was uh, astonishing yeah and it, it's one of those weird uh, kind of unexpected benefits of the slight delay in the broadcast pr work because had we gone around the news of the court appeal being successful then of course it would have been slightly harder for us to attribute it just to that one interview because there would have been other media covering the story but the fact that it was in isolation a few weeks later was was yeah was really really impressive and jonathan what other tactics did you use to spread the word i think it was a couple of things First of all, our own personal networks, people we know uh, across Europe and North America, just simply getting in touch with these people and, and asking them to spread the word. And I think that was effective. That was certainly getting us into the audiences that we were interested in, the political audience, the think tank research audience, journalists covering, covering Russia. And then I think the second tool was Twitter, quite simply. As you know, we created the, the Big Steel podcast Twitter handle, and we started using that, and it worked. I think it really got us into all of the markets that we were most interested in. There's a long tail, isn't there, in podcasting that you can try and take advantage of, or just enjoy as it hopefully it sort of keeps bringing people in, and 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 that word of mouth builds up. Yeah, I think one of the things that we often talk to our clients about is not purely obsessing on promotion at launch, because once you've pushed an episode or mini series or long form series 
there's often opportunities that arise which enable you to direct people to this amazing repository of audio content. So again, just thinking about this as an example with Dominic Raab essentially ratifying or saying he's going to ratify something similar to the Magnitsky Act quite recently, that gives us an organic opportunity to potentially drive people to the Bill Browder episode to find out a bit more about what this means, who was Magnitsky, what's motivated this man, Bill Browder, to essentially become this amazing champion for, for this man's legacy because of what happened to him in Russia. So important that trying to talk clients out of blowing all the marketing budget is a big thing, isn't it? And, and, and becoming, I think it's becoming more important because so many people are launching new podcasts. Yeah, definitely. I think that you definitely want to inject that enthusiasm engagement at launch, but but don't spend all the money then because because you'll be scrabbling around for <laughs> for coins thereafter when you've probably got something new and exciting, but for whatever reason your listeners may have drifted away or your episodes even if they're subscribing to your podcast might be appearing below others that they happen to listen to on a more regular basis. So yeah, you definitely want to keep your powder dry a little bit so you can direct to content when it lands or when an organic opportunity arises in the future so numbers wise and we you know when we look back on the on the pure data for the podcast there's two numbers that really matter one is we've had over 190,000 listens to the podcast which is something we're all very proud of and the other element is the listen through rate which is increasingly the most important data that we look at because it just shows us how long people are listening for and how deep that level of engagement is and we've never seen a podcast that we've produced hit the engagement level that this has. This has over 95% listen-through rate for all the episodes that we've created. How much emphasis have you put on that data as we've gone through and does that help to validate what, what you created, I guess? It's hugely important. I mean, I remember having a conversation with you, Neil and Martin, where we said, look, getting the biggest audience possible, whether it's in the UK or elsewhere, is not our priority. We're not looking to make a hit here. Um, it takes a lot of pressure off that, I have to tell you. Sure. <laughs> it's, it's a handy um, thing to but, hear. But, but that was, I think that was a measure of what we were trying to do. We, we, we recognised that we had a complex story. We recognised that it wasn't always the easiest listen uh, for different reasons. And therefore, I, I think certainly from the client's point of view, we didn't want to compromise on that. And yet, as you've just outlined now, Neil, we have fantastic figures, which is which is great. And I think that's testament to the work that you've done. Martin, in, in the uh, interest of being completely honest about what we create here, we've had one element of the series that we've had complaints about. Uh, and it's all your fault, uh, which is music. You know, anyone who's created shows for Radio 4 knows that... Um, it's a controversial topic and it's something that winds people up. There is a lot of music in this series and it's used almost throughout. Why did you put that in and what do you think it brings to the table? Yeah, it's a very good question. And I think the difference between this and a straight documentary is I almost saw it as creating a movie, scoring a soundtrack because the stories are so fantastical. I did spend a long, long time selecting the tracks for the right moods that are created. Then the Russian zero-sum view of security, anything which weakens their adversaries, including the United Kingdom, by comparison, makes Russia stronger. So if they target 
social cohesion, if they target resilience, if they set communities against each other, if they weaken political decision-making. With any of these things, they are achieving their objectives, even if they don't necessarily have a particular geopolitical or strategic outcome that they want to achieve. There are moments where we use music to reflect the mood, but also there are times where we cut the music. And that is equally as important. And because this series had so many moments in it that stopped me dead in my tracks because of the subject matter. For instance, Bill Browder talking about the death of Sergei Magnitsky. These are stories that really do, really do affect you emotionally. I remember when we were talking to Bill, when, he, when we were interviewing him, it's difficult to ex- explain how it felt. It was a real moment of, wow, goosebumps because how has this happened you know how how has this actually taken place that this person was murdered in the way they were and i think the music really played a part in just bringing bringing the bringing the listener in i think and yet no matter what you do you're always going to get someone that says i don't like the music i'm not listening anymore well that's fine but as you said a 95% listen through rate i'm happy with that i i think i i what i think what's interesting there is that podcasting and particularly true crime podcasting has created a sound of its own there's a genre of its own and we talked about this really early on this is a piece of journalism but it's also a true crime podcast there's a reason we put it in the true crime category of itunes and therefore we we took some of the grammar and some of the style of true crime podcasts and applied it to journalism and i think that is something that is a it's you know legitimate i don't you know, I'm not one of those complainers about music, but I also, I think it's podcast listening has changed the way that people expect speech audio to work, and therefore it's sort of fitting in with the genre that that we were creating. So, um, I think I think it's really important for all our clients to take into account that podcasting is a genre that isn't radio from a different machine. It's a type of media in itself. It's a type of style in itself. And I think we have lots of clients who, for, for all the right reasons, come to us and say, we want this to sound as if it was on Radio 4. And that's a perfectly legitimate you know, place to take your reference point from. But we also have that conversation that says, fine, but it's not Radio 4. There's a, there's a, a style that goes along with podcasting that will be different and that we need to make work for us because it's what the, what the listeners expect to hear. Right, so Jonathan, um, any advice you'd have for a comms professional in a similar sort of arena who was thinking about getting into the same adventure that you've been on? I Go ahead and do it. That would be my advice. I mean, I had spent many years listening to podcasts, but it's the first time I'd, I'd, I'd worked on one or been involved in one myself. And I would encourage any communications professional to go down this route. For the reasons which I gave earlier, because if you have a complex story that cannot be squeezed into a tweet or a press release, then a, a, a podcast is a great way to do justice to your story. There you go. All you needed to know about The Big Steel, which you can still hear by listening on any podcast platform or going to thebigsteelpodcast.com. It's a project that taught us a huge amount, took a load of energy, but was very much worth it. It also proved that a well-resourced, thoroughly researched, beautifully presented investigative journalism podcast isn't exclusive to American true crime. We can do it here as well. 
thanks to Jonathan Hill, Director of Communication for GML, Martin Points Roberts, our in-house producer who lived and breathed this for over a year, and to Dan Stainsbury from our partners at Marketeers for DC. If you'd like to know how Fresh Air can help you make a podcast for your comms, your marketing, your business or brand, please do go to our website, freshairproduction.co.uk. From me, Neil Cowling, and the whole Fresh Air team, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. <laughs>